hey, we're at the most important part. You've heard a lot, but you're at the most important part of our Sunday um, uh, gathering together. And of course, the most important part of this gathering isn't what I have to say, but it's my opportunity to explain to you and to us to hear what God has to say. And He does that through the Bible. He speaks to us through the Scripture, and um, we have, we have um, some learning that we do together every Sunday from the Bible. So, I wanted to mention something to you here uh, real quick. I'm, I have to go fast through this for the sake of time, but I just wanted to show you because there's so many people, I think, who are relatively new on Sunday morning that you may not know that we have our Sunday message notes available for you on both our website and our church app called the North Central Church app. And you can go on there and click um, Sunday message and you will get a um, link both online and the app to a PDF file and you can see what we cover here on the screen and what we talk about together. You can get in a PDF format and for those of you who are way more into learning and listening and note-taking right on the spot, we have here in the church app, this is just a screenshot of the notes that are also this but in the version where you can fill in the blanks and type notes to yourself and then email it to yourself later so that you have it forever. Forever. Any forever filers and archivers, where are you? File it and archive it forever, just in case, right? Just in case. So, I hope you take advantage of that. It's on our church app, first button, um, Sunday messages, uh, and you can, it'll link you over to these little links so that we can learn together. Oh, and I almost forgot to tell you, too, that on our website, and you can also find this in our, in our church app, there is a list. Every time we do a series, there's a list of something we call Grow on Your Own. And this list is a list of resources that are videos, books, and podcasts that will help you grow on your own in the topic that we're covering on Sunday morning during our message series. So you can dig deeper than just what you're hearing on Sunday mornings. I've come to discover that on Sundays I can listen, but it doesn't necessarily mean I'm learning. So I have to do the extra part during the week to help me learn so that Sundays isn't just a listening exercise. So I hope this is helpful to you when you find these. Some of these things have been life-altering for me and uh, for our staff, and we share them with you in hopes that it helps you kind of go deeper and uh, dig down a little bit. So it's Thanksgiving month here in our culture, in our country, and obviously this is the one month where we get one day during the entire year where everybody commits together to be thankful. Thank God for everything we have. Or in some cases, for those who don't believe in God, thank me for all that I've produced and collected and gathered in my life. Or thank the stars, the universe, the whatever. Uh, obviously, the Christian family gets together and we say, thank God for giving us everything we need and providing it so faithfully. But God has a challenge for His church family. Are you ready for this? His challenge for His church family is not just to be thankful for what you have, but it's to be generous with what you have. In other words, you go so far to say, thank God for all that He's given me. And then what if the challenge for the Christian church is to go, let God take you, stretch you, kind of like pull you into another layer and level of maturity where now we're not just thankful for what we have, but we're generous with what we've been given. 
And that's the challenge that in spiritual maturity that begins to happen to somebody. Do any of you remember during that phase of your life where you were being stretched from being thankful for what you have to being generous with what you, what you have? Anybody remember that phase of life where you were being stretched? Any of you, it's, it maybe for some of you, it's this phase of life. Most of us can remember when that started to happen. But Christians go a step beyond being thankful and they learn to be generous they are able to do more and give more than ever before. So actually, look at how it's worded here in the book of Corinthians. Paul's writing to the church at Corinth, and look what he says. Since you excel in so many ways in your faith, in your gifted speakers, in your knowledge, in your enthusiasm, and the love that you're getting from us, he says, I want you to excel also in the gracious act of giving. It's amazing that he has to kind of say, oh, and also don't forget about giving right? So we're kind of compelled to be excellent in all these areas of our lives. And Paul says, but even though you're excellent in all these other areas, don't forget to excel in the gracious act of giving. It's like he has to add that, otherwise the church at Corinth would forget it. Christians, I wonder if you agree with this, Christians should be the most generous people on the planet. The most generous people on the planet. And they should sense a cheerfulness and a willingness to do that because of God's generosity toward us, because of His overwhelming generosity towards us. No strings generosity was the hallmark of the first century church, and it should be the hallmark of the 21st century church. God isn't, and this is important, God isn't asking us to be wincing givers but willing givers. You know what wincing givers is? Wincing givers, do you know when you wince and you're like, oh, this is going to hurt? You know what I mean when you wince? Is that, that's not cringy, that's wincing. Like, oh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt. So God is able to develop in us the kind of giving that isn't wincy. It's like, oh, here we go again. I'm wincing. Instead, it's a willingness. There's a cheerfulness that is able to be shaped in our hearts. Excellent and cheerful givers don't start. They don't start by just saying, God, if you want what I have, my money, my wealth, my resources, if you want what I have, you're going to have to pry it out of my hands. That's not where it starts. Let me tell you where it starts. This is so amazing. It starts at a very, very um, important beginning place. And actually, you know how I feel? I wanted to mention this to you. For a pastor teaching and training generosity, I think it feels similar to parents who are trying to help their children learn to eat their veggies. In other words, parents don't do that because they want to do that. Instead, what do they know? They know that if their child doesn't eat their veggies, they're malnourished. They're missing important ingredients that give them strength. They become weak and tired and lazy. They become disengaged. And so, I'm not saying your children. I'm saying their feelings are similar like... This is good for us. We're going to learn. And and some of you, you learn to eat your veggies. How many of you like your veggies? Where are my veggie likers? You should thank God for that. You ever come across people who are trying to get fit and feel better, and then they're like, the only thing is, I hate vegetables. And you're like, OMG, that's a problem. That's a problem. So, um, how do we start? How do we start? How do we start excelling at generosity. What's the, what's the beginning point? Let me tell you, the beginning point is not focusing on our wealth. That's not the beginning point. 
The beginning point, this is so important, because if you miss this, you're going to really miss the most important motive for giving. We don't start at focusing on our wealth. What can I do with it? How do I leverage it? Who do I give it to? We don't start there. We're going to start with our heart. It starts with our heart. The very beginning of learning to be generous people starts, importantly, at our heart. Look, here's how it's written in Romans. Paul writes this letter to the Romans, and he just gets done writing 11 chapters of how incredible God's character, His attributes, what He's done for us, and who He is to us. He just gets finished. And then he says, and so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies, which means your whole life, to God. Now, why would we do that? Why would we give our whole lives to God? That sounds so unreasonable. That sounds so excessive. That sounds like an awful lot. Well, it's because of all that God has done for us. And we start to dig into why we can be willing, cheerful, proportional, um, sacrificial givers. And the reason is not because we have so much we don't need anything. It's not because uh, um, of any other reason except it's because it's in view of the mercy of God that He's expressed to us. That we are able to kind of whole life sacrifice, turn ourselves over. The reason, the motive... The driver, your compelling focus is all He has done for us. And in light of that, and I know there's some people who are um, prone to ask this question. Well, it's funny you should bring that up, Pastor, because I don't really know what He has done for me. I find myself in need here. I find myself empty over there. I find myself missing things over here. And all I've done is prayed and asked God for one thing or other, and it's missing. And I don't know if He knows me, He hears me, or sees me, but here I go. And I do wonder sometimes, what has God done for me? This is a thrilling part of the story of the entire Christian message. This is, the thrill, this is a thrilling part to explain that God's righteous anger, it's called His wrath, is aimed at all of our selfish sin. All the ways in which that we have cherished someone or something else above God. And God has this righteous anger that is aimed at all of that sin. He has to, because He is a just God, He has to express and punish that kind of sin. And it needed to be appeased before any sin could be forgiven. And by the way, sin is cherishing anything above and beyond, including ourself, above and beyond God. So God, in His loving mercy, in His loving mercy, God sends His Son who offers Himself willingly to be the one who self-sacrificially by His own love is willing to absorb and take on that righteous anger to satisfy God's holy anger against sin. And He did that on His own. He did that willingly. And in this way, God demonstrates His righteousness that He cannot allow sin It's both His mercy and His justice are being expressed right into and on top of His Son. So now, what does that mean for us? So now you and I get to be justified before God. 
You and I, by our faith, are declared not guilty, but instead declared righteous by the divine judge. It's called justification by faith through God's grace. It's only by God's grace. What does grace mean? It's unmerited favor. It's favor that God gives us that we didn't earn or deserve or or merit. And so, because of all of that, because He's given us life instead of wrath and anger, because He's given us hope and joy instead of despair and punishment, because of that, because of Him making us right with Himself and putting us in right and real relationship with Him, we now are able to give our whole self to God because if He didn't, we would find ourselves not just dead in our sin, but eventually dead forever, separated from God. And He spared us of that by His own divine mercy. So giving your whole, your whole self to God isn't a decision that you make by willpower, right? One author, Jerry Bridges, um, one of my favorites, he writes, a genuine heart response to the worthiness of God is the highest possible motivation for pursuing the disciplines of spiritual growth and for the obedience and service to God. So the worthiness of God, the worth of God, I'm referring to the spotless righteousness and holiness of God. No blemish on His holiness and His righteousness. Life-changing justice and mercy. Life-altering justice and mercy. I'm talking about His infinite love and His mind-blowing grace. And so, then my heart responds. Then my gratitude starts to build. And then, how do I now live? Here's what Paul says. He goes on to say, So let them, your bodies, your whole life, be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. The gospel says that because God did that, we now serve him. And religion says you serve him so that God will justify you. Right? The good news is it's upside down. God does all the work and we do all the responding in worship. And, and, and our self-sacrifice is an act of worship here that's acceptable to God. So, um, what do I mean by this? How are we going to make this point simple for us? Here it is. The one proper response to all that God has done for us is wholehearted sacrifice. A word that's a New Testament word that's even uh, probably uh, just as helpful for us is obedience. Obedience. Your whole self, your whole body has come alive. God has made it alive instead of dead and separated because of all He's done for you. And He's sacrificing ourselves for God's use. The practical outflow of wholehearted sacrifice is expressed by a church in Macedonia. By the way, there is a church in Macedonia, first century, and it is a poor church, the poverty church. They don't have much. Destitute, socioeconomic, they're in the bottom. And they become kind of famous in the first century church for their generosity. They're taking up a collection for the church, the church at Jerusalem, the church that is kind of suffering and needs some kind of an influx of, of, of financial resources, and the word goes out to all the churches that there is a need, and it turns out the church in Macedonia is the church that responds. Overwhelming, so much so that Paul writes, for I can testify that they gave not only what they could afford, but they gave far more. They did more than we asked them to do, more than we expected them to do. And also, they did it on their own free will. They did it willingly, not wincingly. 
Also, they begged us again and again for the privilege of sharing in the gift of giving to the believers in Jerusalem. This church knocked it out of the park. So, is this church just good with their money? Are they just disciplined with their money? Are they just... um, um, What could be driving this church? How did they do this sacrificial giving? Can I show it to you? I mean, I'm going to show it to you. Check this out. Watch this. How did they do that? Look at Look what Paul says. They did even more than we had hoped, for their first action was to give themselves to the Lord. So if we, like the Macedonian church, if we have a generosity struggle, it turns out the real struggle is a heart struggle. The struggle that we're facing is not a giving struggle. The struggle that we're having is a give ourselves to the Lord struggle. That's the battle we're fighting we're not fighting the, the open hand. We're, we're, we're fighting the who does my heart belong to. So the first action, what they did before they gave any of their wealth was to give themselves to the Lord and to us, His church, just as God wanted them to do. After wholeheartedly giving yourself to God, your attitude towards what you have, what you own, material wealth that you want, after that, it begins to change. After you first give yourself to the Lord, your heart belongs to God, you respond to what He did and His beautiful mercy and justice and His justifying us by His own grace and our faith, it begins to change. So what should a Christian's attitude toward material possessions be? Can I just say one thing to start before I explain this? The the first kind of knee-jerk instinctive reaction is it should be different. Let me mention this again. What should a Christian's attitude toward material possessions be? It should be different. Different. We have a different lens to see the world. We have a different lens to see where stuff comes from. We have a different lens when we look at material wealth that we own or that God's given us or that we want. We have a different lens. It should be different. We look at these things differently. A while back, I heard this story. I'm not sure if this is true. And this is important. Um, In fact, some of you are do good research. I'm, I'm curious if you ever found this uh, story, if, if uh, you discover it to be true. But I, but I can believe it. When I heard it, I thought, I think I can believe that story. And I've mentioned it here over the years, and I wanted to run this by you again. There's a story about, do you remember the, the, in history, do you remember the kind of the phase of our history, the, the global history, where the crusaders existed, the Christian crusaders? And they were... Um, kind of trampling through um, uh, this massive region in the world and and, um, executing people in the name of the Christian faith. You remember that? There's a story that the crusaders, when they were water baptized, when they were going under the water, have you ever heard the story that when they were going under the water, they would hold their swords up above the water? Have you heard that story? Some of you have heard it here maybe. And here's the reason. Because they they wanted to give their whole life to God except their sword. Why? So they could keep on killing. They were afraid that if they gave their sword, if their swords were baptized with them and they gave their sword to God, he would say, no more killing. Do you find that believable? I do. I find that story believable. If it's not, here's what I've decided. If it's not, would you not tell me? Because then I, then I got nothing on that story. So then I, then I, then I came across someone who said, listen, that's a wild that, that is stunning, may or may not be true, but that's stunning. But really, in large part, American Christians have done something very similar. And this kind of hit me funny, and I thought, 
I don't know if this is true. I could believe the Crusaders, but I'm not sure this is true. And here's what the person said. The, the, the commentator said, in, in the American Christian demographic, different from the Crusader, we also do that during baptism, but when we are lowered underneath the water, a lot of American Christians keep their wallet above the water. Because we want to give our whole lives to God, but on the way down, we want to leave our wallet out of the water just to make sure that we don't put ourselves in a position where God now asks for our money or our wealth. In other words, God can have my whole life, just don't take my stuff. Just don't take my money. Now, that I can believe. That's easier to believe in terms of the metaphor. Paul's letter to the young church leader, Timothy. Paul describes to the, to the um, young leader how to teach the church of all ages, how to teach the church about their wealth. And he gives very practical instructions. Now, in verses 6 through 10, he actually addresses the Christian poor. And we'll do that. We'll, we'll talk about that in, um, in the future. We'll talk about what Paul says to the Christian poor. But later in verses 17 to 19, he gives specific instructions on how to, tr- how to teach generosity to the Christian rich. Who are rich in this world? Here's the verse. Teach those who are rich in this world. Well, just to be sure we know who he's talking about, who are the rich in this world? And you might ask yourself a very good question, am I rich in this world? Well, if you do a little bit of research, you'll discover that the average household in the United States, this is back in 2020, the average income, household income in the United States is $59,900. Well, $60,000 is the average household income. Globally, only $68,000 a year of income puts you in the top 10% in the world. 68,8. Can we round up? 70,000 ish puts you in the top 10% in the world. So now, if you're a teenager or you're a college student who is fundamentally broke, fundamentally empty handed, right? Um, keep this in mind. If you are holding at any time in your life just $4,200 to your name, you're richer than 50% of the world's population. That's kind of fascinating, isn't it? If you're holding $4,000, I know some of you teenagers are like, oh, I would kill somebody to hold $4,000. No joke, not lying. Now, if you're living on more than $5 a day, this might go out to our college students. If you're living to more th- on more than $5 a day, $1,800 plus a year, you're wealthier than 50% of the world's population. As of a few years ago, Get this, as of a few years ago, one in ten people in the world live on $2 a day or less. I mean, that's why. Now, it's important for me to mention this. I don't run those by you for us to feel guilty. That's not, in fact, I don't think that's even uh, uh, the way that God has designed us or His church. It's not the teaching that He gives us on wealth. In fact, what I'm hoping that you see is that probably with very few exceptions, we are the people that Paul is teaching. We are rich in this world. Um, in fact, how many of you are at the stage of the year where you start telling friends and family, don't buy me anything for Christmas? Raise your hand. Don't buy me anything for Christmas. And how do you follow that up normally? I already have what? Everything I need. 
but then you keep getting text messages by friends and family. Seriously, what's on your list? What do you need? Nothing. Sometimes, thank God my filter's working. What, is this, what does this mean for us? What does this mean for us? What does this mean for us? Teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud. Here's what it means. Teach and tell the rich who are Christians among the church. That's us. That's we people. All of us. Teach them two things. Your money, he says, is both. It's two things at the same time. It's a little bit complicated, but you've got to sort this out. It is both a trap, but it's not just a trap. It's also a tool. The, the, the wealth that God has given us becomes something that can trap us or it becomes something of a tool that can be used. And this is what the Bible says, this is what God is speaking to us and teaching us as people who belong to Him. Your wealth is so unreliable, is what He says. Your wealth is so unreliable. Teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money. Why? It's unreliable. We have an amazing um, period of time that we are living in right now as to the global markets and currency. Isn't it? Are you keep, anybody keeping up with it? The dollar and gold and stock market and cryptocurrency, whatever. It's, it's wild. Hold on to your hats. I've started to plant tomatoes just to be safe. <laughs> I don't know what that means. I don't know. But if you need tomatoes when the world collapses. So what does this mean for us, right? Um, don't fall into the trust trap. Don't trust yourself. Don't be proud. I wonder if you recognize any of these people. We've got Elon Musk and this is the stock portfolios and their wealth since February of 2022. You'll notice, maybe you won't notice because I'll have to, it's kind of small. Elon Musk has lost $69 billion with the recent stock market change since February. Bill Gates lost $21 billion. Mark Zuckerberg, $54 billion. Jeff Bezos, $61 billion. And our old friend here, Warren Buffett, he's earned $1.2 billion. Let's hear it for Warren. Nice job, Warren. Slow and steady, a little at a time. Here's what, I, here's what I wanted you to see with this. Paul says to Timothy, God has revealed this important truth to him, and he says, teach Christian people that they should never trust in their own self and their own money because it's unreliable. And then in real life, we experience it. We can watch it happen to billionaires losing billions of dollars who may have, they may not have, who may have begun to trust in their own wealth. They may have begun to trust in their own selves and their ability to accumulate money. And Jesus warns us of the ravages of our wealth. It is subject to moth and it's subject to rust and burglars. And of course, we'd have to add um, inflation. We'd have to have fire. We'd probably have to add stock market crashes. And so there's two dangers then to which the rich are exposed. And that is a false pride. You start to believe that your wealth means that you're better than other people. 
you start to kind of gather up this sensation that you have succeeded, you've excelled in earning power, you've excelled in wealth, and therefore you somehow start to look down on people who are less fortunate themselves. And also there's a false sense of security. Trusting the gift that I have instead of the giver. And in this way, wealth can spoil life's two principal relationships, causing us to forget God and then despise our neighbor. So instead of loving God and loving our neighbor, we, just, we kind of forget God because we don't need Him. We're kind of gathering our own stuff. I trust in myself. Look what I've done for myself. And then we despise our neighbor because they're not as successful or as wealthy as me. So what does this kind of unreliable wealth look like? If I were to put this on a graph, oh, we actually have a graph, and I can show you what unreliable wealth looks like on a graph. This is it. Can you see that okay from there with that white and then the fine line? Yeah. So this is uh, four hours recently. And it's four hours recently of um, a particular holding held by a cryptocurrency billionaire. And this is the day that he had one day recently and um, in four hours of time. And in four hours of time, it was an FTX token. It was worth almost $20 early in the day. Four hours later, it was down to, work, down to $5. The wealth that was lost here was greater than 75%. And this is a real and recent market crash in cryptocurrency. It may not have hurt you because you weren't trusting your wealth as much as someone named Sam Bankman Fried. I kind of find it funny that this guy, this billionaire, had a hyphenated middle name, and it's Bankman. <laughs> that's, that's funny to me. The irony is crazy. So Sam Bankman Fried is um, a crypto billionaire who went broke in a day. Did you hear about this recently, this last week? He went broke. Well, can you all do this with me? He went broke in a year. Do this with me. He went broke in a year. Because of the cash crisis of his company, is going through this. He's a CEO, giant um, um, company called FTX, lost $16 billion of his own wealth. He's 30 years old, and he just experienced in about four hours losing uh, $16 billion. By the way, his company, Bloomberg said that his company at one point or other was thought to, uh, on, the, on the path to grow so, br- so big and so vast that it could buy up Goldman Sachs. That was the projection by Bloomberg. And by the way, if, is there any empaths listening? Any of you, you don't have to identify yourself. I don't want you to. If you're an empath, I just, I just, if you're listening, maybe you're watching on the live stream, why don't you just take a deep breath, okay? Because Sam is okay. He, lo- he lost $16 billion of his own wealth, but he still has only a billion dollars left. So if you're an empath, just relax, okay? No tears for... For Sam. I'm sure it's distressing. Um, 94% drop is the biggest drop that billionaires have ever seen in one day. This trust trap, trusting in the markets and in wealth and in homes, property, this uh, trust trap is avoidable. It's avoidable. Teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Instead, instead of that, if you belong to God and you're a part of His church and you have a worldview that God has designed all things and then He teaches us how to live in the world, instead of that, their trust should be in God, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. 
It's a joy of God's to give to His people. Everything that we need comes from the generosity of God. By the way, if you're new to the Christian faith and the whole giving thing is troubling, um, here's where we start. We start with the idea that everything we have belongs to God anyway. And when you're giving something to God or to people and you're being generous, you're not giving away your stuff, you're kind of stewarding His stuff. And that's a game changer for sure. You know, so when you give to God, um, do you have any kids who do Christmas shopping in your house and they ask you what you want for Christmas? And then you get it and you open it up on Christmas morning and it's not lost on you that they bought your Christmas gift with your money, right? It's not lost on you. What do you want for Christmas? I'm going to buy you something as long as you fund it, right? And in large part, that's what Christians are like. Everything that we spend, everything that we give away, we're only giving it to somebody through us. It belongs to God, and so we're giving away His wealth, not our own. Nothing you own came from you. So if this is true, if this is true, and we believe that God is telling us something that's true here, we have to transfer our trust to God. Our security, our um, rest, and our needs, all of it come from God. And we transfer our trust, and He gives us everything we need, and He does so for our enjoyment. And Jesus teaches this, right? He says there's sparrows and, you know, God knows their very needs and he, the, the, look how well-dressed the lilies of the field are dressed by God and they're, they're just plants. And, and um, if you have a satisfying meal, you may think to yourself, well, I went to the grocery store and bought this. Well, I went to the restaurant and their expertise prepared this for me. And yet at the same time, if you keep walking it back further and further, every single meal is made up of elements like protein, fat, carbs, and the good ones have added sugar. Where did that come from? God created it. And guess what? He created our bodies to need protein, fats, Everything we need, He provides. And where does He provide it? From the ground, from trees, from my tomato stand that I'm going to have. Some of you live in a secure shelter. You look, you're watching down in Florida, you're watching those hurricanes wipe out a state and you know that everybody's seeking shelter and they're shoring up their shelter. Maybe you live in a shelter and you go, thank God for this roof over my head. All the security of shelter, cement and concrete and the strength of tree wood, where does it come from? It comes from God. He provides all that for us. The love that you get, whether you have to Rely on your pet, that's okay. Dog love is good, faithful, loyal. Some of you have parent love that has been unconditional for you. Other people, um, not birds. There's no bird love, right? It's all one way. They're so ungrateful, those birds. But Paul doesn't direct the rich to divest themselves. Instead, he says, transfer your so if you're a Christian, there's no vow of poverty that's expected. Serious and obedient Christians, you do not have to choose poverty to wholeheartedly follow Jesus. You don't have to choose poverty to wholeheartedly. Here's what you have to do. You do have to choose to transfer your trust to God. Everything I need, He's going to provide it. Everything I've needed, He's provided. Everything I need today, He provided. Everything I'm going to need in the future, He will provide it. 
He does so because he's generous. So by all means, be rich. But instead of building your life and identity around your money, last thing, real quick, tell them, these Christians, to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. So now it gets very practical. He says, transfer your trust, and then as you put your heart and you root your heart in God's ability and willingness to provide everything you need, all of a sudden now your heart comes alive and your hands start to open up. And your arms start to open up to provide compassionate generosity to people who are in need. You're always ready to do that. So he says, use your wealth as a tool to do good. A lot of us, we grew up in a church where the main Christian message was be good. Be good. And then because of the gospel, we're freed from that being our main message. And now out of joy and out of responding to God's love, the main message is do good. Do good. Be rich in good works. Be generous to people who are in need. Always be ready to share, and in doing so, you'll be imitating God. It's exactly how God is to us, and we get to imitate Him just the same way. For God is rich, and yet out of His riches, He richly provides us with everything that we need. So, what now? Well, let's start with giving our whole self to the Lord and to His church. That's where we start. The main question is not, are we ready to give? The main question is, does our heart belong to God? Have we surrendered and submitted ourselves wholeheartedly to God in light of what He's done, in view of His mercy, because of all that He is and all that He's done for us, because of all of the attributes of God that make Him so uh, worthy of giving our whole hearts to? Every human gives their um, self to someone or something. And some give some of their self to God. But God is deserving of your whole self. God is deserving of our whole heart. And our obedient self-sacrifice, our obedient generosity is the kind of worship that God is honored by and is pleased by. Um, Secondly, inspect the roots of your trust. If, I got to tell you, if I had a billion, a billion dollars, I would find it extremely difficult to trust God for what I need. I do know that if, and I wonder if it's the same for you, if you were living on, let's say uh, for the sake of argument, let's say that we had to manage on $5 a day. That means every day you're at five below trying to figure out what you're going to buy. Every day, $5 a day. Here's what you would discover. I don't have enough of, on my own to take care of and cover what I need, so I'm going to need God to provide for me. But the more we get, the more difficult it is to trust. i got to tell you, when I was young, early in my 20s, I didn't have any money. I found myself I didn't even want any money. And then I started to save a little bit, and as that number went up, I decided now that I have a little money, I need some more money. It was like this strange... It, it, was the, it was an opposite reaction, but we have to inspect, and we have to take time and say, God, would you help me? Honestly, inspect where are the roots of my trust? Where do they go into? The stuff I have, the stuff I want, the stuff I need, or is it truly in all that you are? I believe that you take care of me even if I lost everything, even if I didn't have everything, even if somehow my own, um, uh, my own earnings chart collapsed and crashed. 
And are you willing to ask yourself, do I trust my financial security too much? Or when I think about being more generous, does it stir up fear that God won't provide enough of what I need? And then lastly, let's get practical about getting rich in good works. Most of us have something to give. Most of us may not have a lot to give, but we have something to give. And don't forget the main Christian message, it's not be good, it's do good. Now, after the goodness of Jesus kind of sets us free, you get to do less complaining about life's disappointments and more proactive giving to provide practical help. I find myself so sucked into so often just complaining about the world, right? Any other complainers with me here? Just complaining this and that and this topic and that topic and this person and that place and that so on. And, and then at the same time, if I'm honest with myself and I think about these things, it would take so much pressure and so much heartache out of my life if I just stopped thinking about what there is to complain about and started thinking about who needs something. Who is in a position uh, uh, who, who is in a position to use or to have or to receive something that God's already given me? Someone, somewhere, even among the church family, someone somewhere needs the help that you can provide. Isn't that amazing? Something you have, someone needs. Um, and you might say, well, I don't know who needs my help. And that's the beauty of getting in small groups. When you get in small groups and you meet regularly and start to build relationship and get under the Sunday morning service surface, you start to discover more needs. So it's possible to discover what the needs are by putting yourself in a position to have closer, deeper, under-the-surface relationships with people. That's when you start to kind of hear and learn that there are real needs by pursuing genuine biblical community, getting around the same people regularly. And when you get around them regularly, you're able to get under the surface. I don't know about you, but people on Sunday morning that I'm walking by aren't telling me, oh, by the way, one thing I really need, we're having a lot of trouble feeding the kids. You can do that, but it doesn't doesn't happen. But it does happen over long-term relationship with a lot of trust built up. And it can happen just like that in this church family. So, I'm praying for us that we grow in this area, that we really start to learn to grow even more in our excellent generosity. Would you pray with me, church family? Father, thank you today for the way in which you have taught us and trained us. We pray today that you would work deeply in our hearts. We recognize that this is a heart issue, not a practical lifestyle issue. And I believe that you're at work creating room in our hearts, rooting our trust in you. We're grateful for all the things that you've given us here in this Thanksgiving season. We're thankful for what we have. But even more now, God, would you help us to launch into a new phase of life where beyond our gratitude is our generosity. Beyond our thanksgiving is our compassionate giving of everything that you've given us. May you find our hearts tender and our hands open as you train us up and mature us and teach us to give. Even practically with Operation Christmas Child and thank you for all of the work that you did in our hearts to be a part of Thanksgiving. There's limitless opportunities 
We pray that you'd open our hearts and open our eyes to see needs and that we would be faithful to be a part of what you're doing to provide for those needs. We pray these things in Jesus' name who met our most desperate, deepest need, the need for life and forgiveness and right relationship with you. Amen. Would you stand, church family? We're going to take some time here to sing in response to this. And I pray that these words that come out of your mouth aren't memorized words. They're words that the Holy Spirit is just kind of like confirming and affirming out of your heart.